today, I'm playing an interview I did with Sheila Ray. Sheila was lucky enough to have discovered her passion, her destiny, her path at five years old. She discovered it at five years old. She grabbed onto it with both hands and she has never let go. So if you want to hear a story of someone who has always known and has never given up, just listen to Sheila Ray. Okay, I'm here with Sheila Ray in my hotel room in New York City. And I'm explaining to Sheila that I interview people who make their living or their life with an art. And I believe that the art to which you have given your life is the theater. Yes. Basically as a writer? No, actually, mostly in my early years as a performer. Ah! Because I started at the age of 10 in Chicago as a dancer. Well, this, you've, you've, <laughs> you've, you've anticipated me. I only ask one question, and that is, do you remember the very first moment that it occurred to you that dancer, singer, writer, performer, actor, entertainer, whatever that is, whatever it seemed to you that it was, occurred to you? Oh, yes. Good. Oh, well, yes, good. Absolutely. Okay, what was it? <laughs> My mother, who had an incredible artistic bent, she was very musical and really beautiful, an incredible personality. She addressed my sister and I, who was two years younger than me, up in our best with our little white gloves. I was five years old, my sister was three. We sat on the aisle in the, I guess now Cadillac Theater in Chicago, which was I think then called the Palace, where the National Company of South Pacific was playing. And she took us, that was my first musical that I ever saw. When you were five? When I was five. I turned to my mother at that musical and I said, I'm going to do that. And my mother was like, okay. I just was mesmerized by it and I, I just knew that I loved that world and wanted to crawl in it somehow. Yeah, okay. So, so how did you get from five saying, that's for me, to... First I said to my mother, I need dancing lessons. So I started taking dancing lessons. My mother and my father both believed if you were going to do something, <laughs> you had to have the very best teachers to instruct you in how to do it. There were three younger sisters who were all dancers, two are choreographers, one's a dance history professor. You know, and, and dance, dance, all dance. Yeah, well, dance was strong in the family, but music was also strong in the family because my father's sister, Ray Bernstein, was a uh, piano professor at UCLA, and she, as a child, made her debut with the Chicago Symphony at 15, and then toured the world accompanying Rosa Ruisa. Do you remember mm. that singer who was wonderful? Wonderful. Anyway, so that okay, was my so aunt. So there was like, my grandfather was a cantor, a hazen, so there was like <laughs> strong music. Well, not only that, music. but there was the idea that one could make a living and a life with an art. It wasn't so far-fetched. Right, exactly. Right, exactly. Right. Um, okay, so, all right, so you say, Mommy, dance <laughs> dance classes. Right. And they get you a dance teacher. Right, they get me Edna McRae, who was in Chicago at that time, the premier dance teacher. You know, she trained all the dancers that went into Ruth Page's company and any company that was coming through. And this was this was in the early 50s when Balanchine was married to Maria mm-hmm. Tallchief, and they were living in Chicago, too. So these were the people who were, like, roaming around the studio. Right. So dance was really kind of in the air. It was a very live art 
for you and the people you knew. That's right. Okay. That's right. When you went to Miss McRae's, you didn't just learn dance. You learned how to work. You learned an ethic that took you into life. And if you talk to anybody who studied with Edna McRae, they'll tell you that. In order to study with Edna McRae, you also had to have a piano teacher because she was insistent that you know music. So everybody who studied with Edna McRae also had piano lessons. I got piano lessons, and I was like pretty good at the piano, you know. I started taking piano lessons when I was about six. So my Saturdays were spent at Edna McRae's and then with my piano lesson, and then I had my music theory class because my parents thought you had to have the best teacher. So I went to the Chicago Conservatory of Music. And then as I got into grade school, I also played the violin because I just liked it. Edna McRae mm -hmm. also had like a little performance group. She took the best from each of her classes at whatever age you were. And so I made my debut at 10 <laughs> as a doll in Babes in Toyland oh with the Chicago Park District. The Park District had money to do these enormous productions with Ruth Page dancers and the Edna McRae dancers and singers from Lyric Opera. And so this was the Babes in Toyland right. one Christmas, and I'm in it. <laughs> and at the very end of the show, Everybody comes out, and I'm a little doll on toe shoes, doing my little doll thing. And they wanted everybody to sing Hail to Toyland. And I discovered right then that I had the loudest voice <laughs> of anybody in the entire show. The conductor had to ask me to, like, sing a little more quietly. <laughs> Here's this 10-year-old on toe shoes coming out going, Hail to Toyland! A born performer. Yeah, right, 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 right. right, right. Okay, so um, also then you must have known that you either like to and or could sing. Yes. Yes. Okay, yes. good. So you've got, you, you, this is triple threat here, right? So, okay. Well, not, not really, because I wasn't an actress, and I have to not say yet, that, I, right? that I never really became an actress. Oh, right. I acted in a lot of shows. <laughs> Oh, now that I work with real actors, I know what that is. I'm not You're sure not I was ever right. one of them. And Wynne Hanman will probably testify to that. <laughs> okay, so high school, is that what you said? Yeah, right. high school. And, you know, high school I was, you know, a little Nutrier campus star. And Nutrier was an extraordinary high school to go to in the 60s because not only was there the legacy of Anne Margaret, but there was also a brilliant director, conductor, William Peterman. I was just so gifted to have him in my life, you know, just, it was a wonderful experience to work with him. And he directed all of the shows in Trier. So, and then he had a wonderful choreographer who worked with him too, Suzanne Wente. Okay, so here we have you, just enjoying the hell out of it, being a campus star. And do you have aspirations, or do you have any thoughts about what you're going to do, or be, or any of that? Well, I knew that I wanted to be a performer. And my parents, my father was an attorney. My mother here had this, you know, musical bent. But they were very adamant about my going to college. Very adamant about it. I, I just wanted to come straight to New York. I was ready to, right. you know. I was already auditioning in Chicago. I was working in summer stock in the summers. And they said, you have to go, you have to, go to college. So I auditioned for the music school at the University of Michigan and got in. And went there as a voice major. But in those years, the University of Michigan didn't have a musical theater program.
So if you wanted to perform, you had to be in, and dance and theater was not part of the music school the way it is now. It wasn't integrated. So I had to do my acting in the liberal arts school, and I had to do my dance in the liberal arts school, and I had to do my singing in the music, in the music school, and that was my major. Okay. And then I went to Europe and studied, I mean, because my parents believed that <laughs> if you were going to do something, you had to have the best training that you possibly had. So I went to, I uh, did my junior year abroad in London at the Royal Academy of Music and the Guildhall School of Music and Drama to get sort of the credits that I need. I had to, I had to go to both. Yeah, this wasn't and a bad thing. This was not a bad thing. <laughs> no. And I had wonderful teachers over there and came back a really good, legit singer, which I also had no real intentions of being, even though that's how I was trained. Training, right. You know. Okay, so you get out of college. Then finally, do you get yes, to do it? I get out of college, but you have to understand that all through college, I'm also, like, working. I'm doing summer stock. I'm touring right. with The Sound of Music. I'm back in school. I'm, you know, I'm doing... You're doing as much things. of it as you possibly right. can. So I graduated from college, and I came to New York, and I would say, well, I got a job. I was here maybe four days. Um... And that was also an, another really lucky thing. I had some friends in college whose mother was one of the great singing teachers at the time in New York, Sue Seaton. And Sue was like the network for all people. Coming into New York, she got me, when Hannah was my acting teacher, she hooked me up with an agent right away. I mean, you know, she was just an amazing woman. She was more than a voice teacher. Yeah. Like Edna McCray was more than a dance yeah. teacher. That's how Sue was about voice. And um, so I went into this review at the St. Regis Hotel, and Shirley Rich saw me in it and cast me in Fiddler, and I went into Fiddler, like, within, I don't know, two months of being here. <laughs> And that, did, that would never happen anymore, you, you know, because you need your equity points and you need, you know, yeah, the, right. the whole way of doing things now is so different. And she was one of the few casting agents around. Wow. You know, there weren't even, the casting agents control the business now. There weren't casting agents. There was Shirley Rich. <laughs> okay. Know, who All right. Braille Prince. So that was it. So, so you, so you were launched. So you were working. Yeah. Right? I was working. Okay. So my parents couldn't believe it. My father thought I'd be <laughs> home in like, you know, four months. But I imagine you know, they were very pleased. And Fiddler, my God. Right. And it was, you know, that that was 1967, so it was still the original company, Fiddler. Mm-hmm. I was in it with Harry Goss and uh, Maria Karnilova. And, um, and I stayed in it for, well, maybe t- ten months. Okay, so I know you as a writer. Um, right. So... How long did this performing thing continue before you started to write? It, can, it continued a long time, but while I was performing, um, I wanted to do an act. I mean, I was in Fiddler with Beth Midler. Yeah, she right. was doing an act, so right. I figured, right. well, I better do an act, too. Right. So um, I got on this television show called CBS Callback, which was like a showcase on Saturday afternoon for new talent in... New York, and the musical director for that show was a young guy named Barry Manilow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, right. And we became great friends. And so I said, Barry, you know, I want to do this act. You right. know, he said, well, okay, um, you need some songs. Right. So, you know, we started writing some songs, and, 
he was friendly with this young girl named Melissa Manchester. <laughs> she was writing some right, songs, right. and everybody was writing songs. And I got a manager who said, Sheila, if you really want to be um, a recording artist and a singer-songwriter, you've got to write some, some songs. So that's how I started writing. It was really just that crazy. I liked <laughs> it better than performing. I liked I liked being inside the material that way better than actually having to try to get inside the material as a performer. Well, it's somebody, somebody else's, else's it's somebody material. else's material, right. right. So did you do your own material or I did. I did and I worked at, you know, all the little clubs like Reno Sweeney's and Dangerfields and all those places. We're talking the early 1970s. And I got signed mm -hmm. as a recording artist to a subsidiary label of RCA. So we have you in the early 70s, and you're a singer-songwriter. That's what you now are. Right. I mean, you because I want to be like Carol King and Carly Simon. Right. Or that's right. what my manager wants right. me to be. And I also get married. And I'm really like leaning more and more towards the writing. But I'm still performing. You know, I do a, a tour of the Rothschilds, and I do a, a revival of Company. Mm -hmm. And you know, I mean, I'm, I'm like performing, right. but I'm also like having babies. And it's very hard to yeah. like, you know, feed the kids and jump on the subway. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding that increasingly more difficult. And like in the late, late 70s, my husband and I are looking at each other, thinking maybe we want to leave New York City uh. for the burbs. And then I'm wondering how am I, really, how am I going to keep performing? And so we move in 1981 up to, really up to the country, because Bedford, New York, where we moved, was then very rural. Worst country, you know, really the country. Mm -hmm. Now it's become very suburban, and lots of people live there and commute easily to the city on a train service that, services them, but in those years, yeah. they didn't even have that, you know. Wow. So, I get up there, I think I'm going to bake cookies and make curtains and be really happy, mm -hmm. and I'm, after about six months, like, biting my fingernails, thinking, what am I going to do? And one of my songwriting partners uh, was a woman who had become very successful in the jingle business, and we formed a jingle company together. And we did that till about 89. And we were one of very few women in the jingle business. Mm -hmm. It was a male-dominated business. It still really is. Right. My daughter's in it now, and, you know, I've watched her struggle, too, as a composer. Uh, far better producer than I ever was, but she grew up under the council, so she knows how to do all of that. And she's a terrific songwriter, too. And, and it was, you know, it was a struggle. But we did it. We did it. And then... We decided the company wasn't really happening, and I went to work for Rupert Holmes oh. as um, a song plugger, because Rupert had this enormous back catalog of songs, mm -hmm. and his then-manager uh, wanted me to see if I could get records on his songs, and I knew the business a little, having been a songwriter, so, right. you know, I knew how to navigate that world, and actually got lured back into the theater. Actually, this is a wild story. I went to work for this record company called Savage Records, which was owned by a young kid named David Mimran, whose father was a French-Algerian Jew, wealthiest French-speaking person in the world. <laughs> 
they owned sugar refineries all around the coast of Africa, and they financed this record company. And our, our recording artists were like David Bowie and Kylie Minogue, and just incredible. Mm-hmm. So I worked for them for a while, and then right about that time that I met Lois Wise. I don't know if you've ever heard of Lois, mm-hmm. but she owned with her husband Wise Advertising. She coined the phrase with a name like Smuckers, it's got to be good. <laughs> She'd also written about 60 books, and she'd written a little book called Funny, You Don't Look Like a Grandmother. Mm-hmm. And when I met Lois, I went, which Lois are you? Because I knew there was a Lois Wise who owned Wise Advertising. I knew there was a Lois Wise who was a, 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 an author who had written all this poetry and all of these books. And then I knew there was also a Lois Wise married to the producer, Lee Goober. Oh. And she said, well, I'm all of them. <laughs> That's all me. And I, I, I just couldn't believe it. I was blown away. And we became fast friends. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, you know, I have this little book, Funny, it'll look like a grandmother, and it's number one in the New York Times bestseller list, a little book. Yeah, right. And um, do you think it'll make a musical? So I went home and read it. And I said, um, let's do it. And she said, great. And Freddie Gerson, her cousin, hooked <laughs> us up with uh, Robert Waldman and we wrote this musical and what do you know blow and behold I'm like back in the theater again this is about 1993 and I've been back in the theater, theater ever, ever since. since right okay so uh, you, big time like, I mean you know really big back in the theater well and actually what does that mean well then I became president of the League of Professional Theater Women so if there's a woman working in the theater in New York I probably know her and most of the national women working in the theater and also under my tenure as president of the league we developed a huge international wow. division of the league. So oh, you're not kidding when you said so, you're so you know so it's like to your ears in the yeah. theater, right. And then um, and then recently I became president of the board of this little off Broadway theater company called New York Theater Barn, which specializes in doing new musicals and I love it because I'm working with all these wonderful young writers and seeing what they do and and the young artistic director of the company Joe Barros he choreographed my musical I Married Wyatt Earp off Broadway last year so okay so like, now talk to me about I Married Wyatt Earp this was about 1995 I got the idea for this musical it, it had been stewing in my brain for a long time because I read this book called I Married Wyatt Earp uh, by a guy in Arizona named Glenn Boyer, whose family had actually been involved with the Earps. And he wrote this journal, which is actually a compilation of all of Josie Marcus's writings. And she was a woman who had left Brooklyn, moved to San Francisco, ran away from her well-to-do Jewish family in San Francisco to join a traveling stagecoach company of HMS Pinafore, Ended up in Tombstone, met and fell in love with Wyatt Earp and became his third wife. But I met Michelle Browerman, the mm-hmm. composer, on a, on a sort of blind writing date. I went to Michael Kirker and I said, I have this idea for this musical and I really feel strongly that it should be a female composer. I don't know why I feel that, but I think that might be right. And he said, I have just the person for you to yeah. write with. Yeah. And so I went to California on a blind date to meet her, <laughs> literally. Yeah. We talked on the phone and we started working on some things and then she said, you know, we should be in the same room together. And I said, yep, you're right, 
I'll be right there. I'm coming. <laughs> right, right, right. I'll put my money where my mouth is and, right. you know, let's see if we can do something. And we've written all these little one acts over the years and found that they had a, a common thread, which is that they all take place at a table, so they're called And the Tables Turn. And um, it's about how relationships evolve and are constantly changing and the tables continuously turn. turn. Yeah, they do. So, uh, so not only do they take place at the physical table, but they're also... Metaphorically table, right? Right, right. So you don't have any urge to, to be in any of these things? Well, I don't. But every once in a while I get, like, recruited because somebody will quit. <laughs> Like we were doing a big reading out in California and two days before the reading was scheduled to be presented. I mean, big reading with orchestra in the Wadsworth in Los Angeles. It doesn't get any bigger and better than that. Right. And Carol Lawrence was supposed to play the part but she was not feeling well and couldn't really do it and she quit and I had to Whoa. Do it. And stepping into her shoes is... No kidding. Know, yeah. I mean, you know. But she's formidable. She is. Yeah. And... Uh, and she had done Funny You Don't Look Like a Grandmother on the road. Oh, my. So we had worked together before. She knew me as a writer. Right. And she agreed to do this musical because she knew me as a writer. And then, wow, she couldn't do it. So I had to do it. Well, fortunately, so, you could. Yes, fortunately, I could. And I sing, I sing our demos. Michelle and I sing our demos together. Mm-hmm. And we have a good time doing that. Yeah. And, uh, but I don't have a great burn to... Well, you did it, didn't you? I, I did it, and I, I really fully did it. Yes, I was I just going to say, you did it in every, in every conceivable way, in every yeah, venue, in every... You know, I was know. in many Broadway shows, mm-hmm. so um, I don't have the great burn to do that anymore. Although, if finances get tight, I'd wonder if they hire <laughs> an aging Corrine to come back on stage. They need some 60-year-old something to <laughs> The last question I have is, you've given your life to virtually every form you can think of in terms of performing. Well, on both sides of the desk. Or the table. Yeah, right. (laughs) As they turn. (laughs) And they keep turning for you. That's right. They keep turning for you. Well, you you have to invent yourself. I think that's the only way you can last in this business. My my question is, having done this, what do you want to say about it? Is there something that jumps out at you about what it has been like to... Well, you know, occasionally I get asked to lecture at colleges and music schools and things like that. And um, I always tell the kids, you just have to really believe in yourself. Really believe in yourself. And and go after what you love. That's great. Yeah. It's a, I think that's a good place to stop. Thank okay. you very much. That was easy. <laughs> Didn't know I had so much to say. Of course, someone with as many talents, interests, curiosities, and passions as Sheila Ray must have a lot to say, and says it delightfully and articulately. We're going to go out on a song from I Married Wyatt Earp, which she wrote with the extraordinary Michelle Browerman. This is the culminating song of the show. This is an all-woman's show, and the two lead women who are Josie Marcus and Allie Earp, and it is the coming together after lifetime of struggle between them. It's called All These Years. The person singing Josie, that's the first voice that you hear, is Sheila Ray. So you can hear that big voice that she discovered when she was 10. 
There has never been a night I didn't lie awake while Wyatt slept beside me in our bed. I'd hear those words. I'd hear the truth in what you said. You were right. I was the one to blame. I'd see Mattie's face and I'd feel my shame like a silent nightmare. Her ghost reappears, haunting me all these years. There has never been a day I haven't looked at my life, seeing what is there and what is not. I'd look at Virgin and me, how broken and forgot. I was sure you were the one to blame. You went riding off without a trace of shame. Deep inside the anger. The tears poisoned me all these years, all these years, as if time had stopped that stormy tombstone day. All these years, no matter where I went, I could never get away. That tombstone was weighing on my heart all these years.
Stay tuned for The Lynn Show. Today, I'm playing an interview I did with Sheila Ray. Sheila was lucky enough to have discovered her passion, her destiny, her path at five years old. She discovered it at five years old. She grabbed onto it with both hands, and she has never let go. So if you want to hear a story of someone who has always known and has never given up, just listen to Sheila Ray. It's a lovely story. So hang on. Here come the show. Hearing from an inner voice Finding choice where there's no choice With gentle prodding from the voice Oh You really can Deeper Deeper down You dive Where the child's gone To survive Find discovering what you may have had to hide, what you may not know about yourself, about living the life you were meant to live, about the unfortunate psychological fact, something which, as a psychotherapist, I believe absolutely and have seen demonstrated over and over and over in my practice, that all parents are not able to fully, unconditionally accept and love all of their children. I'm not even talking here about abuse, serious neglect, trauma, although that is much more common than we would like to believe. No, I'm talking about basically decent, loving parents who are doing the very best that they can, who have only good intentions, but who don't realize that their biases, their apprehensions, their fears, their early training is forcing them to discourage their children from being who they are. 
So um, I, I have uh, an example from my practice of a, a, a woman who was raised by a mother and older sister, both of whom were manic depressive and who did a lot of screaming and acting out in her childhood. She was the youngest and she was terrified by all of this chaos and um, what seemed to her to be um, dangerous for her. And, and in, it actually was dangerous for her. Not that she was going to be harmed, but that uh, she couldn't trust when this would erupt. She didn't know what was going to happen. And so she shut down when she was in the presence of extreme emotions, extreme um, expressions of uh, pretty much anything. And so when she had a son and a daughter, and the son began to terrorize the daughter, she was not capable of seeing it. She simply could not. She shut it out because it brought back for her all of that early chaos and terror. She had learned to do it so well that she didn't even notice. Her daughter grew up terrorized and um, unable to be herself for fear that something bad was going to happen to her and there would be no one there to protect her. Luckily, when she realized the damage that she had done to her daughter, Mommy explained all of this and she was distraught about what, ha what she had done to her daughter, but she couldn't help it. And knowing this and getting what the best her mother could do at this time still didn't make it possible for this young woman to find her way. She still had to find her way by herself. She had to become the one who discovered what it was she wanted to be and do in life. She had to develop the capacity to do that, to be her own mommy, as the cliches say now. So, you know, this is exa an example of a well-meaning mommy, a loving mommy, who could not help the way she was unable to support her daughter. Now, um, I'm not going to talk more about this in this um, show because this interview demonstrates remarkably what it looks like when you actually get it. And of course, this is one of the reasons that I interview people who make their living or their life with an art because people who give their lives to an art in this culture can only do it because it is who they really are. They can't help it because there's very little support for it in the culture. In any case, the interview today is with Sheila Ray, and she is one of the lucky ones. She actually got what I am talking about from her family. And so you can hear what it sounds like when you've gotten it. But if you didn't get it, if you're painfully shy and don't want to be, if you're uh, a workaholic and don't want to be, if, you're, if there's any 
aspect of your life. You've always yearned to draw or paint or garden or learn astronomy, <laughs> but you've not felt able to do it or afraid to do it. That person may very well be inside of you. That may very well be you. And that is who you were meant to be. And that is who I'd like to help you be. So at the end of the show, I'll talk about some of the ways that you can discover these things for yourself, some of the things you can do about it. But in the meanwhile, I'm going to play my interview with Sheila Ray. And one of the things that Sheila Ray does is that she writes for the musical theater. And um, one of her shows is called I Married Wyatt Earp. And I'm going to play a song from I Married Wyatt Earp called Ain't Going Back. And um, that's going to lead into my interview with Sheila. So here is Ain't Going Back, followed by my interview with Sheila Ray. It wasn't all that long ago I was a chambermaid Cleaning up a room and house And rarely getting paid Summer up in would grab at me Hoping he'd get laid I'd kick him, turn to heaven And that is when I prayed Lord, if you get me out of here I swear, I work twice as hard as other women anywhere. So, girls, I ain't going back, ain't going back, ain't going back to what I did before. I'm planning my attack, and I might break my back, working fingers till they're my child to think about I'm keeping her on track she's growing up too fast for me I want her childhood back if I could only teach her what is good and what is bad then I will have given her more than I ever had the days of working on my back are through I dig my heels in now with both of you. Oh, girls, I ain't going back, ain't going back, ain't going back to how I lived before. Now that we're all kin, you can count me in. Don't know what the future has in store, but I ain't going, ain't going back. No. Sharing one man's life I'll do whatever I must do For my man to call me wife No girls, we ain't going back Ain't going back Ain't going back to 
with Sheila Ray in my hotel room in New York City. And, um, and I'm explaining to Sheila that I interview people who make their living or their life with an art. Mm. And I believe that the art to which you have given <laughs> large chunks of your life is the theater. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Um, basically as a writer? No, actually, mostly in my early years as a performer. Ah! Because I started at the age of 10 in Chicago as a dancer. Well, this, you've, you've, <laughs> you've, you've anticipated me, okay? The, the question, I only ask one question, and that is... Um, do you remember the very first moment that it occurred to you that dancer, singer, writer, performer, actor, entertainer, whatever that is, whatever it seemed to you that it was, occurred to you? Oh, yes. Good. Oh, well, yes. Excellent. Okay, what was it? <laughs> My mother, who had an incredible artistic bent, she was very musical and really beautiful, and, you know, people would stop her and say, are you Faye Emerson all the time? I mean, that's how she looked. She was um, an incredible personality. She addressed my sister and I, who was two years younger than me, up in our best with our little white gloves. I was five years old. My sister was three. We sat on the aisle in the, I guess now, Cadillac Theater in Chicago, which was, I think, then called the Palace where the National Company of South Pacific was playing. And she took us, that was my first musical that I ever saw. When you were five? When I was five. I turned to my mother at that musical and I said, I'm going to do that. (laughs) And my mother was like, okay. (laughs) Not your sister. Well, she was really little. No, my sister was really little, you know, and she kept trying to climb into my lap so she could see a little better. And, you know, I mean, but it just... Completely, I just was mesmerized by it, and I, I just knew that I loved that world and wanted to crawl in it somehow. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and so, I did. So, how did you get from five saying that's for me to first? I said to my mother, "I need dancing lessons." You're kidding? No. So I started taking dancing lessons, and um, and had the good fortune. My mother and my father both believed if you were going to do something. <laughs> You had to have the very best teachers to instruct you in how to do it. Wow. And so all of my sisters, I have um, three younger sisters who are all in the arts. There are three younger sisters who are all dancers. Two are choreographers. One's a dance history professor. Um, and we all kind of, you know. And, and dance. dance. All dance. Yeah. Well, dance was strong in the family, but music was also strong in the family because my father's sister, Ray Bernstein, was a... Uh, piano professor at UCLA, and she, as a child, made her debut with the Chicago Symphony at 15, and then toured the world accompanying Rosa Ruiza. Do you remember mm. that singer who was wonderful, wonderful? Anyway, so that okay, was my so aunt. So there was like, st- my grandfather was a cantor, a hazen, <laughs> so there was like strong music. Well, not you only know, that, music. but there was the idea that one could make a living and a life with an art. It wasn't so far-fetched. Right, exactly. Right, exactly. Right. Um, okay, so, all right, so you say, Mommy, dance, <laughs> dance classes. Right. And they get you a dance teacher. Right, they get me Edna McRae, who was in Chicago at that time, 
the premier dance teacher, you know, she trained all the dancers that went into Ruth Page's company and any company that was coming through. And this was, this was in the early 50s when Balanchine was married to Maria mm-hmm. Tallchief and they were living in Chicago too. So these were the people who were like roaming around the studio. Right. Right. You know, and um, and the again, first Nutcracker. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. For City Ballet was done. The the City Ballet Nutcracker, that Balanchine Nutcracker, was done in Chicago first in 1955. Wow. So the other thing I I hear is that um, dance was really kind of in the air there. I mean, it right. was you know, it was um, it was it, it, not an archaic art. It was a it was a very live art. For you and the people you knew. That's right. right. That's okay. Right. All right. But Enda McCray, when you went to Miss McCray's, you didn't just learn dance. You learned how to work. You learned an ethic that took you into life. And if you talk to anybody who studied with Edna McCray, they'll tell you that. And I still have many, many of my friends from those early years. Yeah. In the 50s, you know, when we were all dancing together as little kids. And um, so in order to study with Edna McCray, you also had to have a piano teacher because she was insistent that you know music. So everybody who studied with Edna McCray also had piano lessons. <laughs> so I got piano lessons, and I was, like, pretty good at the piano, you know. And, um, and, and we're talking and about that. that, six, seven, eight, like that, right? Right, right. I started taking piano lessons when I was about six. So my Saturdays were spent at Edna McCray's and then with my piano lesson and then I had my music theory class because my parents thought you had to have the best teacher. So I went to the Chicago Conservatory of Music. Wow. And then, um, and then as I got into grade school, I also played the violin <laughs> because I just liked it. And, um, and then uh, when I got into high school, I discovered well, that I Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You the, missed something because you said you... Something up where you danced when you were 10? Oh, yes. Well, Edna McCray mm-hmm. also had like a little performance group. And um, she took the best from each of her classes at whatever age you were. And so I made my debut at 10 <laughs> as a doll in Babes in Toyland oh, with the Chicago Park District. And wow. they used to do enormous productions. The Park District had money to do these enormous productions with Ruth Page dancers and the Edna McCray dancers and singers from Lyric Opera. And we would do, so this was the Babes in Toyland right. one Christmas, and I'm in it. <laughs> and at the very end of the show, everybody comes out, and I'm a little doll on toe shoes doing my little doll thing. And they wanted everybody to sing Hail to Toyland. And I discovered right then that I had the loudest voice of anybody in the entire show. The conductor had to ask me to, like, sing a little more quietly. Here's this 10-year-old. I told she's coming out going, Hail to Toyland! A born born performer. Yeah, right, 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 right. right, right. Okay, so um, also, then, you must have known that you either like to and or could sing. Yes. Yes. Okay, yes. good. So you've got, you, you, this is triple threat here, right? So, okay. Well, not, not really, because I wasn't, 
an actress, and I have to Not say yet, that, I, right? that I never really became an actress. Oh, right. I acted in a lot of shows. <laughs> oh, now that I work with real actors, I know what that is. I'm not You're sure right, I was ever right. one of them. And Wynne Hanman will probably testify to that. <laughs> okay, so grade school. Um, so oh, no, high school, is that what you said? Yeah, right. high school. And, you know, high school I was, you know, a little New Trier campus star. And New Trier was an extraordinary high school to go to in the 60s because not only was there the legacy of Anne Margaret following anybody who was coming through, but there was also a brilliant um, director-conductor that we had named Bill Peterman, um, William Peterman, who was, I was just so gifted to have him in my life, you know, just, it was a wonderful experience to work with him. And he directed all of the shows in Trier. So, and then he had a wonderful choreographer who worked with him too, Suzanne Lenti, who actually I still see she's up in Connecticut now. So, um, so what did you do when you were there? So I did Finian's Rainbow. I did, um, uh, what are we doing up there? Well, it, it, um, it's all right. You don't have to remember. But uh, there, yeah, there, was, there was a show. Oh, yeah. um, right, right, of course. I'm trying to think what I did my junior year. I can't remember. Oh, I don't choose, of course. Uh-huh. Of course. Um, so and then I did it later, too, actually. I got to do uh, High Button Choose a few times. <laughs> and I got to do Finian's Rainbow again, too, come to think. <laughs> In summer, so, yeah. Okay, so, um, so here we have you um, just enjoying the hell out of it, being a little campus star. And do you have aspirations, or do you have any thoughts about what you're going to do or be or any of that? Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I knew that I wanted to be a performer. And my parents, my father was an attorney. My mother here had this, you know, musical bent. But they were very adamant about my going to college, very adamant about it. I, I just wanted to come straight to New York. I was ready to, right. you know. And um, I was already auditioning in Chicago. I was working in summer stock in the summers. And um, they said, you have to go you have to go to college. So I uh, auditioned for the music school at the University of Michigan and got in and went there as a voice major. But in those years, the University of Michigan didn't have a musical theater program like they have now. They have one of the premier musical theater programs in the country. They didn't have that. So if you wanted to perform, you had to be in, and dance and theater was not part of the music school the way it is now. It wasn't integrated. Uh-huh. So I had to do my acting in the liberal arts school, and I had to do my dance in the liberal arts school, and I had to do my singing in the music, in the music school, and that was my major. Okay. And then I went to Europe and studied diamond because my parents believed that <laughs> if you were going to do something, you had to have the best training that you possibly had. So I went to, I uh, did my junior year abroad in London at the Royal Academy of Music and the Guildhall School of Music and Drama to get sort of the credits that I need. I had to, I had to go to both. Yeah, this wasn't and a bad thing. This was not a bad thing. <laughs> no. And I had wonderful teachers over there and came back a really good, um, legit singer, which I also had no real intentions of being, even though that's how I was trained. Training, right. right. You know. Okay, so, um, okay, so you get out of college. Then finally, do you get to yes, do it? I get out of college, but you have to understand that all through college, I'm also like working. I'm doing summer stock. I'm touring with the Sound of Music. I'm back in school. I'm, you know, I'm doing. You're doing as much things. of it as you possibly right. can. So I graduated from college and I came to New York and I would say, well, I got a job. 
I was here maybe four days. Um, and that was also an, another really lucky thing. I had some friends in college whose mother was one of the great singing teachers at the time in New York, Sue Seaton. And Sue was like the network for all people. Coming into New York, she got me, when Hannon is my acting teacher, she hooked me up with an agent right away. I mean, you know, she was just an amazing woman. She was more than a voice teacher. Yeah. Like Edna McCray was more than a dance yeah. teacher. That's how Sue was about voice. And um, so I went into this review at the St. Regis Hotel, and Shirley Rich saw me in it, and Cassidy Fiddler, and I went into Fiddler, like, within... I don't know, two months of being here. <laughs> and that, did, that would never happen anymore. You, can, you know, because you need your equity points and you need, you know, yeah, the, right. the whole way of doing things now is so different. And she was one of the few casting agents around. Wow. You know, there weren't even, the casting agents control the business now. There weren't casting agents. There was Shirley Rich. <laughs> okay, know, who all right. Braille Prince. So that was it. So, so you, so you were launched. So you were working. Yeah, right? I was working. Okay. So my parents couldn't believe it. My father thought I'd be home in like, you know, four months. <laughs> but I imagine you know, they were very pleased. And Fiddler, my God. Right. And it was, you know, that that was 1967, so it was still the original company, Fiddler. Mm-hmm. I was in it with Harry Goss and uh, Maria Karnilova. And, um, and I stayed in it for, well, maybe t- ten months. Okay, so I know you as a writer. Um, right. So how long did this performing thing continue before you started to write? It, can, it continued a long time, but while I was performing, um, I wanted to do an act. I mean, I was in Fiddler with Beth Midler. Yeah. She right. was doing an act, so right. I figured, right. well, I better do an act too. Right. So um, I got on this television show, called CBS Callback, which was like a showcase on Saturday afternoon for new talent in New York. And the musical director for that show was a young guy named Barry Manilow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. And we became great friends. Oh, God. And so I said, Barry, you know, I want to do this act. And I said, well, okay, Um, you need some songs. So, you know, we started writing some songs and... He was friendly with this young girl named Melissa Manchester. (laughs) She was writing some songs, and everybody was writing songs. And I got a manager who said, Sheila, if you really want to be a recording artist and a singer-songwriter, you've got to write some songs. songs. So that's how I started writing. It was really just that crazy. Oh, how funny. Well, Well, I liked it better better than performing. Yeah. I liked... I like being inside the material that way better than actually having to try to get inside the material as a performer. Well, it's somebody, somebody else's, else's, it's somebody material. else's material, right. right. So did you do your own material? or I did. I did, and I worked at you know all the little clubs like Reno you know, Sweeney's and Dangerfields and all those places. That's great. Well, are we talking here about... We're talking about... We're talking the early 1970s. And I got signed mm-hmm. as a recording artist to a subsidiary label of RCA that was only owned by um, Ringing Brothers. <laughs> it was called Ringing Brothers Records, and I was managed by Irvin Feld, father of Ken Feld, who now owns Ringling Brothers, Barnum Bailey Circus.
Okay, so um, so we have you in the early 70s, and you think you're a singer-songwriter. That's what you now are. Right. I mean, because I want to be like Carole King and Carly Simon. Right. Or that's right. what my manager wants right. me to be. Um, and I also get married. Ah, good. And um, and I'm really like leaning more and more towards. The writing, but I'm still performing. You know, I do a, a tour of the Rothschilds, and I go out with, um, I do a, a revival of Company, mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, I'm, I'm like performing, right. but I'm also like having babies, <laughs> and it's very hard to yeah. like, you know, feed the kids and jump on the subway, mm-hmm. and um, I'm finding that increasingly more difficult. Uh, and uh, right around that time. So are we, are we in the 80s yet? No, not we're, we're like in the late, late 70s. My husband and I are looking at each other, thinking maybe we want to leave New York City for the burbs. And then I'm wondering, how am I, really, how am I going to keep performing? Right. It's hard to and get on the right. subways from the burbs. Right. And so um, we move in 1981 up to really up to the country because Bedford, New York, where we moved, was then very rural. Worst country, you know, really the country. Mm-hmm. Now it's become very suburban and lots of people live there and commute easily to the city on a train service that services them. But in those years, yeah. they didn't even have that, you know. Wow. So um, I get up there. I think I'm going to bake cookies and make curtains and be really happy. Mm-hmm. And I'm, after about six months, like biting my fingernails, thinking, what am I going to do? And one of my songwriting partners uh, was a woman who had become very successful in the jingle business, and we formed a jingle company together. Wow. And we did that for until about 89 And we were one of very few women in the jingle business. Mm-hmm. It was a male-dominated business. It still really is. Right. My daughter's in it now, and, you know, I've watched her struggle, too, as a composer. Uh, far better producer than I ever was, but she grew up under the council, so she knows how to do all of that. And she's a terrific songwriter, too. And, and it was, you know, it was a struggle. But we did it. We did it. And then um, I just got lured back what happened exactly? I don't. We decided the company wasn't really happening, and I went to work for Rupert Holmes oh. as um, a song plugger. <laughs> and because um, Rupert had this enormous back catalog of songs, mm-hmm. and his then manager uh, wanted me to see if I could get records on his songs, and. I knew the business a little, having been a songwriter, so, you know, I knew how to navigate that world. And um, actually got lured back into the theater. Went to work for another record company in the interim. Actually, this is a wild story. Went to work for this record company called Savage Records, which was owned by um, a young kid named David Mimram, whose father was the wealthiest French-speaking a French Algerian Jew, wealthiest French-speaking person in the world. <laughs> they owned sugar refineries all around the coast of Africa, and they financed this record company. And our, our recording artists were like David Bowie and Kylie Minogue, and just incredible. Mm-hmm. 
And um, so I worked for them for a while. And then it was right about that time that I met a woman named Lois Wise. I don't know if you've ever heard of Lois, but Lois had written, she, she owned with her husband Wise Advertising. She coined the phrase with a name like Smuckers, it's got to be good. <laughs> she'd also written about 60 books, and she'd written a little book called Funny, You Don't Look Like a Grandmother. <laughs> and when I met Lois, I went, which Lois are you? Because I knew there was a Lois Wise who owned Wise Advertising. I knew there was a Lois Wise who was a, 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 an author who had written all this poetry and all of these books. And then I knew there was also a Lois Wise married to the producer... Lee Goober. Oh. And she said, well, I'm all of them. <laughs> That's all me. And I, I, I just couldn't believe it. I was blown away. And we became fast friends. And she said, well, you know, I have this little book, Funny, it'll look like a grandmother, and it's number one in the New York Times bestseller, this little book. Yeah, right. And um, do you think it'll make a musical? So I went home and read it. And I said, um, let's do it. And she said, great. And Freddie Gerson, her cousin, hooked <laughs> us up with uh, Robert Waldman, and we wrote this musical. And what do you know? Blow and behold, I'm like back in the theater again. This is about 1993. Wow. And I've been back in the theater ever since. Right. Okay, so I mean, you know, really big back in the theater. Well, and actually, what does that mean? Well... Then I became president of the League of Professional Theater Women. So if there's a woman working in the theater in New York, I probably know her. And most of the national women working in the theater. And also, um, under my tenure as president of the League, we developed a huge international Wow. Division of the League. So oh, you're not kidding when you said so, you're so, you know, so yeah, it was like to your ears yeah. in the yeah. theater, right? And then, um, and then recently I became president of the board of this little off-Broadway theater company called New York Theater Barn, which specializes in doing new musicals, and I love it because I'm working with all these wonderful young writers and seeing what they do. And, and the young artistic director of the company, Joe Barros, he choreographed my musical, I Married Wyatt Earp, off-Broadway last year. So okay, so now like, talk to me about I Married Wyatt Well, when did, I, when did I get the idea? I guess it was about 1995 I got the idea for this musical. It, it had been stewing in my brain for a long time because I read this book called I Married Wyatt Earp uh, by a guy in Arizona named Glenn Boyer who was, um, his family had actually been involved with the Earps, and he wrote this journal, which is actually a compilation of all of Josie Marcus's uh, writings, and she was a woman who had left Brooklyn, moved to San Francisco, ran away from her well-to-do Jewish family in San Francisco to join a traveling stagecoach company of um, HMS Pinafore, Ended up in Tombstone, met and fell in love with Wyatt Earp and became his third wife and common law wife probably. And so that story just fascinated me. Well, it's, a, it's an amazing story. And I, I have to, in the, in the interest of full disclosure, say that I've seen it several times. <laughs> I know that I love it. Right. And I want to put some of the music from it oh, in, in the, great. In, play it in the interview. Right. Oh, that would be right, wonderful. Right, right, right. So, um... So you had an off-Broadway, I didn't see it off-Broadway, unfortunately. Yes, but 59, 59. But I met Michelle Browerman, the mm-hmm. composer, 
on a, on a sort of blind writing date. I went to Michael Kirker and I said, I have this idea for this musical and I really feel strongly that it should be a female composer. I don't know why I feel that, but I think that might be right. And he said, I have just the person for you to yeah. write with. Yeah. And so I went to California on a blind date to meet her, <laughs> literally. Yeah. We talked on the phone and we started working on some things. And then she said, you know, we should be in the same room together. And I said, yeah, you're right. I'll be right there. I'm coming. <laughs> right, 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 right. I'll put my money where my mouth is and, right. you know, let's see if we can do something. And now we've been partners, gosh, 20, 20 years. I oh, my God. Is it 20 years, really? I, 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 you know, we're on our sixth or seventh little one act and we've written all these yeah talk know. about that as well the the evening of, of one act well we're trying to put together we've written all these little one acts and uh, over the years and found that they had a, a common thread uh, which is that they all take place at a table so they're called and the tables turn and um, it's about how relationships evolve and are constantly changing and the tables continuously turn. turn. Yeah, so uh, so not only do they take place at the physical table, but they're also... Metaphorically table, table, right? Right, right. right. And, um, and that's what we're working on. Well, my God. So, um, so you don't have any urge to, to be in any of these things? Well... I don't, but every once in a while I get, like, recruited because somebody will quit. <laughs> like, we were doing a big reading out in California and two days before the reading was scheduled to be presented. I mean, big reading with orchestra in the Wadsworth in Los Angeles. It doesn't get any bigger and better than that. Right. And Carol Lawrence was supposed to play the part, and she felt that she was not feeling well and couldn't really do it, and she quit, and I had to wow. And stepping into her shoes is no kidding. Know, yeah, I mean, you know, but she's formidable. She is, yeah. and uh, and she had done funny. You don't look like a grandmother on the road. Oh my! So we had worked together before. She knew me as a writer, right. and she agreed to do this musical because she knew me as a writer. And then, right. wow, she couldn't do it. So I had to do it. Well, fortunately, so, you could. Yes, fortunately, I could. And I sing. I sing our demos. Michelle and I sing our demos together, mm-hmm. and we have a good time doing that. Yeah. And. Uh, but I don't have a great burn to... Well, you did it, didn't you? I, I did it, and I, I really fully did it. Yes, I was I just going to say, you did it in every, in every conceivable way, in every yeah, venue, in every... You know, I was you know. in many Broadway shows, mm-hmm. so um, I don't have the great burn to do that anymore. Although, if finances get tight, I'd wonder if they... <laughs> <laughs> aging Corey to come back on stage, they need some 60-year-old something. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, so, I, I like to ask, is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have? Um, no, I don't Okay, so. then the, the last question I have is, um, I mean, you really have given an entire life to what? I don't know. Entertainment. Right. Right. Um, in pretty much every, I mean, you may say you're not an actor, but you have, you've worked as an actor. Right. So, of right, course. Right. Of so course. you've given your life to every, virtually every form you can think of in terms of performing. Right. Um, so, well, would, on both sides of the desk. Yes, really. on both sides. That's on exactly right. Desk, that's yeah. exactly, or, the table. Yeah, right. <laughs> As they turn. <laughs> and they keep turning for that's you. That's right. right. They keep turning for well, you. Well, you have to invent yourself. I think that's the only way you can last 
in this business. Well, then you're answering my question. My, my question is, um, having done this, what do you want to say about it? Is there something that, that jumps out at you about what it has been like to... Well, you know, occasionally I get asked to lecture at colleges and music schools and things like that. And um, I always tell the kids, you just have to really believe in yourself, really believe in yourself, and, and go after what you love and convince your family that it's what you love too. Show your parents your work. Get up there and sing for them. I have young singing students that I coach um, who are in high school and to get them ready for their college uh, auditions. auditions. And I always, at the end of the year, when we've worked on all this repertoire, say, let's bring your parents in here. Do they want to? They usually don't want to. Yeah. Uh, they're yeah. very shy about it. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's so important. I'm really glad that you brought that up because something that comes up over and over again in my interviews is the importance of support from the family. Right. The importance that the family is behind you. They may not understand what the hell you're doing, but they don't but they're behind you. Exactly. Right. And I, I especially do. in this economy when parents want their kids to like, you know, become hotel administrators. Right. right. You, know, I mean, you know, right. exactly. Right. And uh, well this is what happened with a young student of mine. His parents were really adamant about him going upstate to Cornell or someplace to study hotel administration. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he was just an actor, mm-hmm. pure actor, through and through. He, it was in every fingertip of fright. And he went up, and for one semester he was there, and he just couldn't, you know, he couldn't do it. And he came back, and now he's majoring in theater at a, a closer college. Right. To, right. And his family is... Resigned. They're resigned, but, but he, I said to him, include your parents. Right. Let them see what you're doing. Invite them to every workshop and every reading that you're in. And right. Then, right. You know, you've got to show them how much you love this. You know, th- this is a really good point, I think. I, I um, always see it from the other side, that it should be coming from the parent, that the parents ought to understand how important it is to support their children. But I, I really have never thought, and no one has ever mentioned, actually, mm. the importance of it coming back from the other side, mm. from the, the kid taking responsibility for how badly they want this thing and being willing to show that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's crucial. That's really I think crucial. it is. I think it is. I just um, I wrote a song for, uh, this is actually an interesting thing. Uh, on September 24th at the Cherry Lane Theater, they're going to do a benefit for the Women's Initiative of the Dramatists Guild and the League of Professional Theatre Women. They're co-producing this event that will be about the girl-cot, as opposed to the boy-cot <laughs> list, of theatres that do no work by women. Wow. And 50-50, I don't know if you know about that uh, list that's been coming out, and they've been doing all this research about women's work being done and women getting hired in the theater and all of that. Um, evidently, there's a list of 102 theaters that had no work by women in their 2011-2012 season. 102 theaters. That's a lot of theaters up right. there. Professional theaters. Yeah, yeah. So um, I wrote this song with this 
with this guy who's just a wonderful songwriter named Peterson, and we were talking about just this issue because he too coaches a lot of kids. He's a conductor out in Brooklyn. Uh, he teaches at Brooklyn College, and he tells all his kids, share it with your family. Right, right, right. It's great. Yeah. It's a, I think that's a good place to stop. Thank you very much. That was easy. <laughs> Didn't know I had so much to say. So there you have it. Of course, someone with as many talents, interests, curiosities, and passions as Sheila Ray must have a lot to say. And, uh, and of course, says it delightfully and articulately. And what she says there at the end of the interview, I believe, is incredibly important, but also brings up the point that I've been talking about that The Lynn Show is all about, and that is that, unfortunately, we learn so early in life that there are things about us that are not going to go down well with our families, and we learn to protect them from these things. We learn to protect ourselves from their reactions, from their rejection, from their shame, from their fear for us. I don't know if you were uh, listening to the Ed Asner interview, but his parents were so against him being in, in theater to be a performer. His father said, you know, if you could sing like Eddie Fisher, then I would understand it, but, uh, right? And then, I don't know, 20 years after the fact, when Ed is appearing regularly on television, his mother confesses, Viva's wrong, and I'm glad. But that's way too late. <laughs> it's way too late. Uh, and very few have the tenacity and certainty uh, that Ed Asner had. Most of us are like the young man that um, Sheila is talking about at the end of the interview. Parents say, no, 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 you have to go to college to be a hotel administrator. And they say, oh, okay, okay, I'll go. Now, in, to, to this young man's credit, his passion, his certainty was strong enough for him to leave school and go back to his passion. Uh, Sheila demonstrates, and her life really demonstrates, what can happen when parents are willing, able, I think most parents are willing, but they can't help it, when parents are able to see the child for who the child actually is and say, okay, I may not understand it, I may not like it, I may not approve of it, I may be scared to death for you, but I see that this is who you are, and I don't want to fight you over it. Another interview uh, that I did quite a long time ago with Ian Webb, who's the uh, um, director of the Sarasota Ballet and has danced all over the world with everybody, uh, comes from a middle-class British family. He is, in fact, the story of Billy Elliot, which he says he can't bear to watch. But his father, like the father in Billy Elliot, who never approved, even after Ian became quite famous and successful as a dancer, was never able to approve of it, but he was able to support it. 
this this support for the who we really are there's just no way to overemphasize its importance and you see in Sheila's life that the fact that a five-year-old could say to her mommy that's what I'm going to do and mommy could say okay in that case we better get you the training you need and you see that what happens as a result of that is a life dedicated to her love to her passion to her delight that she has explored worked in spent a life doing who she is what she is you can hear it in everything she says not to mention the long long list of accomplishments of opportunities that occurred easily for her and I don't want to say it's entirely because her parents were behind her of course there is her innate talent there is her willingness to work so hard there may even be luck I don't know but I I believe absolutely that the significance of the um, again I never do this but here I'm doing it for the third time I'm going to quote um, Austin Pendleton who um, interviews were the last two weeks and he says that his mother was the wind beneath his wings this and, and Austin had to overcome extraordinary obstacles um, and I don't think we can underestimate the importance of knowing that his mother was there behind him that helped him to confront his obstacles and make an extraordinary career um, so this this is what you get ideally if you didn't get it then the challenge is much greater and the emphasis of where to get it shifts you have to get it from yourself and of course that is the whole theme of the Lynn show that it is gettable and before you can get it you have to know what it is all the people I've talked about in the last five minutes were all trying to get performing acting theater but that isn't the only thing that we don't get support for perhaps it is your willingness to stand up for yourself and say this is what I believe perhaps it is um, your willingness to leave a marriage which doesn't work for you maybe never worked for you maybe it's your willingness to talk about your sexual identity um, honestly I don't know what I know is that few of us get what Sheila got the absolute certainty that who she was and what she was was right and she had a right to be it and to pursue it and not to have to think about it so if there's an aspect of yourself that didn't get this it's not too late but the beginning is to find that thing ask yourself what is it that I think I might have had could have had might even think I have but can't find or express or access 
And as always, you can find information about this in my website, thelinshow.com, T-H-E-L-Y-N-N-E-S-H-O-W.com. You can get my book, When You Can, You Will, Why You Can't Always Do What You Want to Do and What to Do About It. You can get that on the website at the Lynn Show Shop. You can even uh, come into therapy with me. All my work is now on the telephone. And you can read the article I wrote about telephone therapy, psychotherapy on the go. Also, not surprisingly, on the website. And the other thing you can get on the website is access to Josh Hackney, my extraordinary IT guy who can do anything and everything with computers, with electronics, with recording, anything that has a plug. Um, Josh can figure out what to do about it. And so if you're struggling with any of that, go up on my website, say you want Josh, and I'll get him for you. We're going to go out on a song from the show that um, Sheila was talking about, I Married Wyatt Earp, which she wrote with the extraordinary Michelle Browerman a very old friend of mine who I also interviewed. And if you want to hear Michelle's interview, it's up there on the website with all the other interviews. Um, this, um, this is the culminating song of the show. It is uh, sung by the two lead women. This is an all-woman's show, and the two lead women who are Josie Marcus and Allie Earp. And it is the... Um, coming together after lifetime of struggle between them. Um, it's called All These Years. And the other reason I want to hear you, I want you to hear it is that the person singing Josie, that's the first so- voice that you hear, is Sheila Ray. So you can hear that big voice that she discovered when she was 10. Okay, so we're going to go out um, on all, the, um, all these years. And um, I just want to say, before I play it, that, um, as always, I hope you got something that you can use from this show. Something you didn't know that you learned, something you knew that you forgot, that you now remember, something that amused you, or, well, you know, something that will bring you back. Because I will be here next week, same time, same station. And as always, I sure hope you will be. (laughs) 